0: What's up, everybody. How y'all doing? Good morning. Fantastic. My name's Nithin. i one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you as we are in part three of our seven-part series seven, where we're actually exploring the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Before we jump in, will you join me in welcoming all of our campuses watching all over the state of New Jersey? We are so excited that y'all are here with us. And you know, this has been a phenomenal series. And in fact, maybe you notice if you look to your right or your left, there's folks that have these awesome books and, you know, these are actually our group guides. We're actually going through this series as an entire church. And so what happens is folks are kind of coming in, they're, they're opening up their books, and they're, they're taking notes, they're writing things down. And then when they go into their groups, they'll have like, oh, all your discussion stuff is right there. So we're helping you prepare for your group. That's amazing. And if you're like, hey, Nathan, where can I get those awesome books? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm going to tell you. You can steal one from your neighbor who's next to you or... Or you could do the, the right thing and go over to our Next Steps kiosk, and you can buy a book for $5. And uh, it's a great book. It's lots of great information here. I hope you pick one up as we go through our series seven. Now, the first three chapters in the book of Revelation, as we look at these seven churches, are all actually written as letters. They're letters from Jesus to the churches. Now, maybe you're asking, how did Jesus like, get these letters to them? And actually, there was a guy named John who actually took down a dictation of everything that Jesus said. He said, John, write this down. John, who's in prison at this uh, island in Patmos, he writes this down. He sends these letters off to the different cities that they're located in. And these cities are actually all part of the Roman mail route. You can see in this map here, it shows you you've got uh, Ephesus here, which is the first stop. And then Smyrna, which is the second stop. And this is actually the second letter. And Pastor Tim kind of walked us through this last week. Now, if you remember the church of Smyrna, this is actually one of two churches that actually was not um, rebuked. They were not corrected actually. And, and they were given encouragement, they were given comfort, and the reason for that was is they were getting crushed through persecution. They were, being, they were being beaten up, they were being killed, they were being martyred, all these different things, because they held fast to the name of Jesus. And so in your groups, one of the things that we did was we actually prayed for Christians that are being persecuted around the world. This actually has not stopped. In some places, it's worse than others. So many of you prayed for the Christians in Iran, in Iraq, and in Syria. You pray that God would strengthen the church that's in North Korea, that's in India, that's in Africa. And one of the things that we learned is that God is close to those who are suffering because in Christ, because of Christ, we can be at our best even when life is at its worst. Jesus is close to those who are suffering, especially to those who suffer for his name. And Smyrna, they were suffering for the name of Jesus. But church number three, Pergamum, they're having some struggles that we're going to look at in a moment. Now, the city of Pergamum was actually the capital of Asia for over 200 years. I mean, this was the city that you wanted to be at. It was hip. It was cool. It was trendy. The ruins of the city are actually in modern-day Turkey. And if you actually uh, look at some of the ruins, it actually gave hints that these buildings actually were about 1,000 feet tall. These were like the first skyscrapers in, in the ancient world. And so Jesus is addressing this small church that's living in this city of authority and kind of cultural uh, eliteness. He's writing this letter to them, and he says this, starting verse 12. He says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Double-edged sword. What is this about? Well, you see, Pergamum was actually one of the first cities that supported Rome when they were coming in to take over that area. And so what they decided to do was, we are going to let you guys rule yourselves. We're going to give you authority. And that authority was symbolized with the sword. And so it meant that Pergamum had the right to dole out capital punishment. They had the right to to put people to death. And so they were doling out all this punishment, all this rage against the early church as it was kind of growing. And Jesus, when he's addressing this church, he wants to remind them that at the end of the day, Pergamum, doesn't hold the sword. Jesus holds the double-edged sword. He is the only true and righteous judge. He's saying that as a way to encourage the church in Pergamum because he knows where they're at. He knows where they live. And he goes on to say this. He says in the next slide, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. Next slide. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Satan, the devil, the throne of Satan. Wow, that's kind of, that's intense stuff. It's like, you know, it's like a death metal album or something. I don't know. But you hear about this, you know, you hear all this stuff. Really, what Jesus is trying to say, listen, guys in Pergamum, I get it. The place that you live in is dark. It's evil. There's so much terror that is going on there. I get it. I know where you live. But it's not just a metaphor. Like, oh man, the city's really bad. But it's actually a literal threat. In fact, if you ever go to Pergamum today, you have the, what's called the Acropolis, which is really this, this big hill that kind of oversees the city. And on this hill, you have actually three uh, shrines to different pagan gods. In fact, we got a picture here. You can check this out. And uh, over here is what's called, known as the Temple of Trajan. Trajan was actually a Roman emperor who, while he was alive, thought, you know, I'm pretty awesome. I should build myself a temple and call myself a god. And that's what he did. He built these temples all over, and all the other Caesars followed suit. And so there was this whole cult of Caesar worship that was spreading throughout the entire empire, where it was required of you, if you were a citizen of Pergamum, to say, Hail Caesar, Caesar is Lord. Kind of like what Pastor Tim was talking about a couple of weeks ago. But the church in Pergamum says, no, no, Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. But not only did you have the Caesar emperor cult that was going on there, you also had the temple to Zeus. Zeus, who was the king of the Greek gods, who was this, this, power, this powerful war god as well. He had a temple right next to Trajan's temple. In fact, you can see a reconstruction of it actually in Berlin, Germany. And here it is right here. Let me ask you this. What does this kind of look like to you? Like, if you imagine that, you know, you're a giant, right? And you've got your arms on the armrests and you have a seat. What's it look like? It's a throne. So this giant throne and that temple were on this hill looking down on the city. So when the church looked up, they literally saw the throne of Satan right where they lived. And Jesus is saying to them, guys, I know where you live. I know that you're watching your friends die for my name. I know you're losing jobs. I know your kids are suffering. But you know what? You've held on to my name. It says this, actually. Jesus is commending them by saying, Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. He said, Guys, when the pressure was on, you didn't deny me. You, you, you held on, even when things got dark, even when they were killing good people friends of yours. In fact, there's this one uh, in verse 13. It actually talks about the first martyr, the first person killed for their faith in Christ in that city. It was a guy named Antipas. He said, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Now, Antipas, he might have been like an early church leader, a pastor, a bishop. No one really knows, but they do know this, is that Antipas was asked to worship Caesar. And really what that looked like was you get a little bit of incense, you throw at the statue, and you say, Caesar's Lord, that's it. But Antipas Antipas just said, no, I'm not going to do that. Antipas, if you don't do that, they're going to charge you with treason. But Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And so to make an example of him, they took Antipas and they put him in a giant brass bull. Now, in this giant brass bull, uh, they would put the person inside, and underneath they would light a fire. And as the fire got hotter and hotter, the person inside would roast to death. And here's just how clever the Roman Empire was, or cruel, is as the person started screaming, because it got hotter and hotter and hotter, inside they had this whole apparatus that actually made it sound like a trumpet. So the person who was screaming, you wouldn't hear screams, you'd hear this trumpet blast. And then you see smoke coming out of the nostrils of this bowl. And so, you, you know, I can imagine you're just walking down the streets in Pergamon and all of a sudden you hear a trumpet and you're looking over going, oh, what's going on over there? You think it's tough following Jesus in the Northeast, right? It's hard to follow Jesus in Jersey, but Pergam is a whole different animal. It's a whole different story. It's like having church in an ISIS stronghold. And that's what these believers had to experience day after day after day. But they held strong to the name of Jesus. They said, we're not going to, we're not going to deny Jesus. We're not going to let go of that name. And so they held on. And so Jesus speaks these words of commendation to them. He said, God, you haven't haven't lost my name. But all wasn't right in Pergamum. They didn't get the applause that Smyrna did and the additional encouragement because while they did hold on to the name of Jesus, they also had to add a couple of things as well. And in verse 14, we see the correction. It says this, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin to by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who, who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, maybe you're reading this and you're going, what is all this stuff that's going on? Like, you got Balaam, Balak, Nickelodeon. I used to watch Nickelodeon as a kid. You know, my, my kids watch it too. Like, what, what's happening here? Listen, there's a lot to unpack here. So I'm, I'm just, you know, Real quick, here's what you need to know. Balaam and Balak were telling the people of Israel that you can have your feet in two different worlds. You can have your feet in the world of God and worship God and follow him. And you can live in a world where you can have sex with whoever you want. You can do whatever you want and it doesn't matter. You you can have it both. And the Nicolaitans were saying the same thing. They're saying, hey, you can go to Jesus and go to church and do the church thing and it's awesome. But you know, you can also go and and, and hook up with anybody that you want and party and all that stuff. You, You can do it all. Who wants to sign up for that? And this was entering into the church. And really, at the end of the day, here's what it was all about. They were saying, People of God, it's time to compromise. Would you say this word with me? Compromise. That is what was happening in the church in Pergamum. They were beginning to compromise, and in two big ways. The first way was through sexual compromise, and the second was to compromise the truth. And there was no better way where you saw the compromise of the Pergamum church than in the festival of Dionysus. Uh, The Festival of Dionysus is very similar to, like, Mardi Gras. Any of you ever been to Mardi Gras down in Louisiana? Any of you? Okay. No one wants to admit it. I get that. That's fine. I was just going to say, you know, I'm just going to silently judge you and then throw you in the brass bowl. Beads and all, you know. But that won't happen. But, you know, that's kind of what this festival was like. It was like Mardi Gras on steroids because Dionysus was the god of wine, of theater. It was all about the power for the party, right? And, in fact, they had an entire um, seating area that was dedicated to Dionysus that we see here. Uh, this is, could actually fit 10,000 people. At the bottom of this was a movable stage that, you know, for all sorts of things. And so Dionysus was the god of the party. So you'd go to his theater, and you'd watch the show, and it'd be great. And then everyone would start drinking, because he's the god of wine. you got to celebrate wine. They would drink. They would get drunk. They would get plastered. And they'd start doing whatever they want with whoever they wanted, whenever they want. I mean, this was pretty toxic stuff. And the church in Pergamum at first was resistant to this. They pushed this aside, but they were slowly making these little compromises, these little concessions. And little by little, they're back into it. And they were saying things like, listen, it's okay. We're Christians, but we can also gossip and backbite. It's not a big deal. Everyone does it. I'm just processing. They're saying stuff like, you know, it's, yeah, we're Christ's followers. We love Jesus, He's our Lord and our Savior. But we also really love partying. <laughs> you know, we want to rock and roll a night and party every day. That's, that's just what we're going to do. You know, we follow Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, every now and then we need to hook up. We've got some urges. We need to have those urges met, right? It's, it's natural. It's, it's normal. And pretty soon the church in Pergamum found themselves in a place of compromise. They'd walked away from Jesus. But they didn't even know it yet. But, you know, isn't that the same for many of us, too? Like, we we have some of these same temptations as well I, in our current modern day. We are tempted with all sorts of sexual compromise all around us, you know? Uh, it, it's kind of happens in small steps or, you know, kind of like small rocks, you know? So the idols in Pergamum, they're actually made out of marble, kind of similar to this. And uh, these marble pieces would actually make these idols and these false gods and would end up being the very things that turned the people of Pergamum, the church of Pergamum, away from God. It would be little compromises. Some little compromises that we make, things that aren't a big deal. Like, you know, it's not a big deal. The other day when that Victoria's Secret commercial came on, and yeah, I watched it, but you know, that stuff doesn't bother me. It's not a big deal. Even though I kind of liked it, I kind of enjoyed watching it. You know, I watch the HBO series, and it's, it's really good. I love the storyline, and it's, it's, the social critique is amazing. I learn a lot from it. But, yeah, there's some graphic sexuality in there, and there's some, there's some images that are really graphic. And, but you know, I can handle it. You know, I'm an adult. I, I got it. I can take care of it, even though some of those images, they come back into my head. Or, you know, my spouse, they're sometimes, you know, not available to me sexually. You know, but that's all right. You know, every once in a while, I look at some pictures Uh, online. It's not a big deal. I do it maybe once every other month, once or twice, maybe three times every month, five or six times a week, five or six times a day. And pretty soon all of those little compromises end up becoming an altar to sexual compromise. We never thought we were going to get here. But but somehow, we ended up here. How did we get there, to this place of compromise? What happens, one stone at a time, little by little, step by step, and here we are. No one ever says, you know, I think I really want to turn away from God today. No, no one ever says that. But the little compromises end up leading to an altar of sexual compromise that can be devastating, that can be destructive, that can destroy everything that God has put in our life to build. And these compromises can become an obsession. Just ask Nate Larkin. Nate is a Christian. He is a ministry leader. He's a father. He's got uh, a couple kids. And he had made a bunch of little compromises. No big deal. No big deal. But after compromise, after compromise, after compromise, it led him to a place of literal devastation. Let's watch Nate's story together.
1: Reputation was everything for me. I set out uh, to build a good reputation and to protect it, which meant that there were parts of my life that I couldn't let anybody see. There were some battles I had to fight alone. I got my first look at hardcore pornography on a seminary sponsored trip to New York City. My wife was with me. They took us on a tour of Times Square so that we could see firsthand how women are exploited by the sex business. I was shocked by what I saw and disgusted by it. But I was also fascinated. It hit me, hooked me deep. I didn't just like porn, I became obsessed with it, and it eventually took me places I never intended to go. So before I know it, I'm a, I'm a pastor, married, three kids, and I'm picking up my first hooker on my way to lead a candlelight service on Christmas Eve. It lasted five years in the ministry. I was never caught, but I was terrified of losing my reputation. My life was out of control. I'd lost any hope that I could stop what I was doing, so I bailed on the ministry, went into business, succeeded in business, but that's about the only thing I succeeded at. Those were dark years my life got smaller and smaller. I hated what I was doing. I remember so many times screaming at God as I pulled away from some place I shouldn't have been, banging on the steering wheel, saying, take this away. I don't want to do this anymore. He never answered that prayer. Eventually, I concluded that either he didn't care or he didn't exist. Today, I'm so glad he didn't answer that prayer. And every day, I gave a piece of myself away. It left me emptier and hungrier every time. And yet, I kept coming back. I was oblivious to what it was doing to my wife until one day she caught me I don't know how long she'd been standing there but she was crying and so I apologized and we talked it through and I was still afraid a few days later she found a a condom on the floor in the bathroom that I couldn't quite explain this time she didn't cry she sat me down on the edge of our bed and she said, I'm done. I still love you, but I don't like you. I don't trust you. I don't respect you. And I don't believe you can ever change.
0: This is the altar that Nate Larkin built. This is the altar, the idol where he sacrificed his marriage, his reputation, his family. And isn't that what idols do? They promise the world to us. They say, they're going to fulfill all your needs. You know, the things that God's hiding from me, I'm going to make it better. They give you all these false promises because they end up empty at the end of it. And the way we got here was through compromise. Did you hear what Nate said? He said this line that still sticks with me. He says, every day, I gave a piece of myself away. It left me hungrier and emptier every time. That's what compromise does. That's what sexual compromise does. And Nate was in this place where he was just compromised, and he lost everything. What's what's your area of compromise? What are you tempted to compromise for? Well, what is it in our culture that has its hooks in you, that's keeping you where, where you're at? Right now on all of our campuses, I want to invite our ushers to come, and they're going to pass out to you a small marble chip. You know, in, in Pergamum, these were the things that they made idols out of, Marble. And so as you're getting one of these, they're getting passed around, uh, these actually are going to represent the areas of compromise in our own lives. Because remember, compromise, it's always small, right? It's it's the little things that lead to the big things, to the devastation. And as you're holding this small uh, marble chip in your hand, I want you to ask yourself this question, what area am I most prone to compromise? What areas in my life am I more prone to say, yeah, I I follow Jesus, but, you know, I add some other stuff in here too? Yeah, I follow Jesus, but, you know, I kind of let some things go here. Maybe it is in the area of sexual compromise. Maybe you're like, you know, pornography, it's not an issue. I do it every once in a while, It's, it's it's not a problem. Maybe it's at work. Maybe you compromise in what you say to people, you exaggerate the truth. Because the other area, where the, the folks in Pergamum compromised, was with truth. They compromised truth. Because remember, we talked about how the Pergamum, in Pergamum, they started letting in these new teachings, the teachings of, of Balaam come in, the teachings of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans, really, their teaching kind of went like this. It's like, you know, if it feels good, then do it. You've got urges, they've got to be met, that's fine. Jesus is okay with it, right? As long as you really love Jesus, it's fine. Just, just kind of go with it. And the church in Pergamum was embracing that. The only person who wasn't was Jesus. That's why he says this to them. He says this, "Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth." See, for Jesus, truth matters. Truth is relevant. He was willing to, to actually go to war to fight for the truth. One of Jesus' names is the truth. He says, "I am the truth." And whenever truth is compromised, whenever truth is is left aside, it's going to have major, major implications, not only in our lives, but also in the things of God. That's why he calls us to live a life of truth. But you know, it's funny, we live in a world that kind of says, you know, it's okay to, it's okay to, you know, compromise on truth. You know, what is truth really? It's like, you know, it's all perspectival, it's all relative. But you know, the thing about that is, is it's not just out in the world, it's also in the church, isn't it? Some of us, we happen to fudge truth up a little bit, don't we? Like you're a server, and you're like, you know, I make mostly cash, so I don't need to report it to the IRS. It's not a big deal. My Christian accountant said it was fine. No one cares. Everyone does it. Or, you know, I really need to get this job, and... uh, I know there's some things in here that I could put in to really make my application razzle-dazzle. You know, I'm going to write that I worked at Google. I interned at Google. I mean, I did, but my, my cousin's brother's um, aunt's roommate did. And I, I sort of know them on Facebook. So, uh, you know, that's okay. It's all right. Or, you know, I was at a party the other day, and I I was telling the story to our friends, and I kind of made myself look really, really good, and and I made my spouse the butt of the joke, but they get it. They they thought it was really funny. Not at first, but they will, you know? (laughs) Or, you know, I I was hanging out with some some friends and some family members, and one of them started making some racist jokes. The humor got really uh, raunchy. I didn't do any of that. Yeah, I, I didn't say anything, though, because I didn't, I just wanted to, I didn't want to rock the boat. I, I didn't want to cause a scene. And those little compromises led to another idol, an idol of deceit, an idol of lies. And so often we do so much of this, and we start to live out of this, and we can't even tell what's true and what's fake. We start to kind of believe our own hype and believe our own spin. See, I absolutely believe that grace wins. We all do, but truth is also relevant. In fact, in your, uh, in fact, you know, the the other day, I ran into a buddy of mine. I hadn't seen him for, for several years, and uh, you know, he was a great husband, great father. He worked for this nonprofit, and I asked him how are things going. And he said, "I actually just got fired." I go, "Well, what happened?" Well, Nathan, I'm ashamed, but I was embezzling tens of thousands of dollars. From this nonprofit, I'm like, How? and I had this kind of friendship with him. So I said, "How did you let that happen? Like, what happened?" And he just said, "This, you know, Nathan. <laughs> it all started with little compromises. I work later than everyone else. I run the finances. No one will know, but they found out. I didn't think I was hurting anybody, but it turned out I hurt my reputation." hurt my marriage. I hurt that company. It did matter. Truth was very relevant in this situation. And one of the questions that you're going to wrestle with in your group is this, is that liquid, two of our core values are grace wins and truth is relevant. In light of the struggles at Pergamum, how important is it for us to balance these two core truths? How can we practice this? Can I just say, I love the fact that we're a church where we're wrestling with these tensions. I do. Because I absolutely believe that grace wins. There is forgiveness and there is mercy for all. Wherever you're at in your journey of faith, we want to help you take that next step. I'm a big believer that grace does win. But truth is relevant. Truth matters. Right belief, right, uh, right habit, right behavior, all that stuff. They work together, though. Kind of like, you know, you think of two rails on a train, right? The train of your life goes forward, and these two rails kind of keep it going. Grace and truth. And so if you need some course correction, you get course corrected with the truth. If you need some mercy, you've got grace. They work together. We need them both working together, but not in compromise. And that's what happened with the church in Pergamum. They compromised. They compromised their sexuality. They're saying, hey, do whatever you want with your body. It's, it's okay. It's all, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, it's good for you. They compromised the truth with their words, with their beliefs, with their behavior. And Jesus said, this cannot be. I came and I died so that you'd be pure. I died so that you'd be white as snow, white as a marble chip. This is how Jesus sees you. And so he said to the church of Pergamum, Actually, the same thing he says to us repent. Repent. Repentance is an invitation to life. Maybe some of you are like, you know, repentance, what what does that mean? It's kind of like an old churchy word. Like, what's that about? You know, repentance simply means this that I'm kind of moving in this direction. This is the idol. This is what my life's about. It's about compromise. And then when the Spirit of God speaks to you, repentance is, you know what? I'm done with this. It's it's a change of heart. It's a change of mind. It's a change of behavior. It's moving in the opposite direction. That is what repentance means. And repentance really is what saves us. Repentance actually gives us access to the gospel of peace, the gospel of truth. That's what's so amazing about repentance. We can repent and find new life in Christ. He invites us to do that. I mean, Repentance, actually, is what saved Nate Larkin. Remember, Nate was over here at this idol of sexual immorality, this idol of sexual compromise, and it had destroyed and devastated his life. And he was saying to God, you know, God, my sexual sin, you know, I see it like this, but God, you're right. It's, it's more like this. It's, it's bigger than what I was giving it credit for. And so Nate understood he was this broken compromised man that needed to be set free through repentance.
1: Because of my addiction, I now understand that that only God is the center of things. He's actually used my addiction for good. Because of it, I've been forced to join the human race and surrender to a power greater than myself. God is good, God is love. And if I'll follow the path that he's laid out for me, I can live every day in the warmth of his love and I can reflect it to others. I don't think I ever really met Jesus until I stepped out of my, my church persona and became just another desperate, broken man. That's when he really became real to me. This isn't the ministry I planned. (laughs) But I know it's mine. And uh, and my wife knows it too. We're in it together. My wife will tell you today that she's been married to two guys named Nate Larkin. And as hard as those first 20 years were, she'd take him again to get the last 10.
0: loved what Nate said. <laughs> he said, you know, once I, I actually took off this whole churchy persona, that's where I met Jesus. And I realized that Jesus didn't love, you know, churchy Nate. He loved Nate. With all my garbage and all my warts and all my sin, he, he actually loved me. And I loved that one statement. He said that his wife would say, his wife said, I would take the last 20 years if that meant I would have the best 10 years of my life with my husband. That's what repentance does. Repentance restores. Repentance restores the years that were taken away and destroyed and decimated. When we turn back to God, turn away from our idols, we find the life that God has meant for us to live. Amen? Amen. That's why over and over again we see in this letter this phrase that says we need to hear what the Spirit is saying. Go to the next slide here. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Because when we can hear what the Spirit of God says and let the Holy Spirit lead us, we are led into truth. We are kept away from error. We are kept away from compromise. You see, the Holy Spirit is God. He's the part of God that that lives in anyone who's a Christ follower. He is in you. He resides in you. And when you have the Holy Spirit, he shows you how you can overcome temptation, how you can overcome sin, how you can overcome the compromises in our lives. When we listen to the Holy Spirit, you know what? He gives you a new name. You know what that new name is? Overcomer. Amen? Amen? Church, say your new name. You are a what? Louder. You're a what? You're an overcomer, church. This is how Jesus sees you. This is how he knows you. Nate Larkin is an overcomer. You know what Jesus says about overcomers? He says this. I will also give him a what? White stone. Interesting. Where have we seen that before? With a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Let me ask you this church right now. We're we'll go ahead all across our campuses. I know this is a screen, but go ahead and raise up your white marble chip. I know that for some of us, we look at this and like, this is a symbol of my compromise, my failure, where I've fallen short. But Jesus wants to give this a new meaning. This is your new name. This is your new name. It's white as a symbol of purity. because This is how Jesus sees you. As you're kind of holding your white chip in your hand. One of the things to realize is historically, these were actually used as tickets. There was no ticket master in the ancient world. So what would happen is you get a white stone and on it would be a secret name that only those going to that event would have. If you're going to the theater or a sporting event, you have that name, and they look at it, and you give you access. This white stone is helped the people of Pergamon, helps us to remember that we have access to heaven, the ultimate after party. It goes on and on and on. That's what this was meant to be a reminder of. We have this, this white stone to remember that Jesus died to make you pure, to make you holy, to give you a new identity. In fact, that's what this whole new name thing's about. It says, I'll give him a white stone with a new name. See, the narrative of Scripture kind of goes like this. is In the Scriptures, uh, whenever someone would become a Christ follower, they'd get a new name. Abram became Abraham. Jacob became Israel. Saul became Paul. And the reason for that is, is it wasn't just simply a new name. It wasn't like, a, hey, we're just going to paint over the mess. It actually meant a new identity. See, when you're in Christ, you're filled with his Holy Spirit. You are no longer the same person you used to be, amen? Amen. You are brand new. You're, You're not the old, just forgiven. No, you're a whole new being. Jesus didn't come to make you better. Jesus came to take your dead soul and to make it alive again. That's who you are. The old is gone. The new has come. You are a new creation in Christ. Maybe the world has given you a name based on your compromise, Maybe it's given you names like liar, exaggerator. But Jesus says, because of me, I've given you pure lips. That's your new name. Integrity, honesty, character. For some of you, the the compromise has been of a sexual nature, and maybe the names the world has given you, it's been porn addict. It's been cheater, shame, guilt. You know how Jesus sees you now? Beloved, pure Holy, a faithful son and daughter of the living God. That's how God sees you now. That's your new identity in him. I wonder what your white stone is going to say. I wonder what name God has for you. Because when you get into heaven, he's going to welcome you with that name, and only you and him are going to know about it. But I know some of you, I know what you're thinking. You're like, Nathan, come on, dude. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the compromise I'm in right now. You know, Jesus, he's going to give me a new name? Come on, I'm, I'm a mess. Here's where I want to encourage you. Jesus doesn't see you from your past. He sees you in your future. Jesus doesn't see your present circumstances. Jesus sees who you're going to be coming. The past has lost its power. The future now is how you are seen in Christ. He's given you a new name, a new identity, a new future. The power of the past has been canceled. For some of you, today is a turning point. You've been at the altar of compromise for too long. And now Jesus is saying, I'm breaking that power off. I'm giving you a new name, a new way of being human. Here's where we're going to kind of wrap things up. You guys got this marble chip? Today when you go home, think of that area where you're tempted to compromise the most, whatever that area is. Maybe it's sexual compromise. Maybe what you're going to say is, Jesus, I'm going to remember that you have a new name for me. and I have access to your kingdom. I have access to you, God. So you place this stone on your computer, on your TV screen, to remind yourself and everyone around you you have a new name. The old is gone. The new is here. Maybe... That's not your greatest area of compromise. Maybe it's truth. And so maybe you put this right by your mirror every day when you get ready, whether it's in the bathroom or... And, and you look at it to remember you are no longer what others have said about you. You will speak with pure lips, with lips of integrity. You won't exaggerate. But you'll be honest, truthful. That's who you are now. See, I think for us, the hardest part is to see ourselves the way Jesus sees us because we see all the the junk, the compromise. But Jesus has given you an invitation. Repent, turn away, back to him, and find eternal life. Because what God's called us to do is to live into our new name. We're called to live into that new name, Whatever that new name may be, there may be patterns of behavior that need to change, patterns of thinking. We need to live into that new name. In fact, one of the questions you're going to look at in your group is this question here, which is, what is the new name God is calling you into? What is that new name that God is calling you into, that he's calling you to fully and completely embrace? Let's pray together. Spirit of God, what is the new name? Right now, you're giving someone a new name. Father, we just break right now the power of the accuser right now. Right now, I get the sense some of you are being accused by Satan himself. And those are lies. We break the, right now in the name of Jesus. Jesus no longer sees you based on your past, but he is transforming you into a new future. He sees you as pure, as holy, righteous, a man, a woman of integrity a faithful son, a faithful daughter. You are no longer a slave to your compromise. You're no longer a slave to your sin. You're no longer a slave to an, your error. You're a child of the living God. Father, would you help us live into our new name? Put off the old, put off uh, the stuff that no longer fits us, but actually help us to change the way we think, to change our affections, to change our behaviors so that we can live out of the new name that you've given us, God. Because, Lord, the old is gone, it's dead, and the new is come, it's fresh. Help us to live out of the freshness of the new name you've given us in Jesus' name.